Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral's Light Show 137. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone. Everyone is fine and dandy, I do hope. A little announcement to make before we even get into what's coming in today's show. And this announcement probably should have been done about five years ago. Starship Sova has now decided to go down the road of enhanced podcasts. Yes, we're going to produce two podcasts of the show, the normal MP3, which will be played on a multitude of devices. But we're also now going to do the enhanced version, which will be played on certain gadgets like the iPhone and the iPod. So if you've got one of those devices and you want chapdad bookmarked pictures in and all links and everything like that, Come along to Starship Sofa and grab the new RSS feed for the enhanced podcasts. If you come to the site, it's explained there. There's a little on the right-hand side. Just put a few widgets on. Click Enhanced Podcast and that'll tell you where to, what to do and how to, to go about adding this new feed to your certain, whichever iTunes or podcast chart you like. So there you go. We will have chapter bookmarks. You'll be able to like zip through the waffle I do. <laughs> do want to listen to that? Zip through anything and just get to the kind of meat of the matter that's really just right for you. So I hope you enjoy this. Like I say, it should have been done a long, long time ago, but it's just it literally is not nearly double the workload, but there's quite a bit more workload. And I've always kind of shied away from it, you know what I mean? But I've had a Mac now laptop for quite a while, and I thought, you know, I've seen a few comments kicking around the web and. I might as well try and jump into it. I mean, it does mean now it's double the server kind of issues, you know what I mean? So kind of double the costs. I'm just hoping it kind of it works out where people do come over and subscribe to this as well, you know, and worth the while, to be quite honest. Well, we'll wait and see. But it'll certainly make it easier if you just want to kind of zip through and, you know, get to your certain stuff. So I do hope you will enjoy that. <laughs> So what's coming up in today's show? Well, I'm just going to talk a little bit first up about the Sofanaut show that was just aired this week. Next up is a fact article explained in 60 seconds by our good friend Megan Argo. Then we have the main fiction, which is Boatman's Holiday by Jeffrey Ford, followed by Science News by J.J. Campanella. And before we get into any of that... Please check now on the enhanced feed. Check out the stunning artwork by Brian Woods to accompany Jeffrey Ford's Bowman's Holiday. Do you know I'm beginning to get to be a big fan of Brian's work? It's just classic and it's just amazing the way he's blended the kind of picture and Skeets put the words at the background as well. So do have a look at that and do pop over to Brian's site. I will put a link on in the Hands podcast to go straight over to Brian's site. And I will put a link on the front of the website as well so you can kind of check out that. 
Brian created the Michael Flynn Clapping Hands of God picture as well and actually did a great little study in like an in-depth study of how that picture progressed. If you want to have a look at that, go over to Brian's site and check out that. I don't know if Brian's going to do it actually in study depth of this one because it was a bit of a rush job for him. You know what I mean? I was like, Brian, you're going to do this for us? And he's like, oh, yes, yes, no problem, Tony. I says, right, you've got a month and that's it. That is it. And it was down to the wire for Brian. So, Brian... You're a star, thank you so much. So first up is Sofa Notes announcement. As I mentioned, Sofa Notes is back and this week I had a great guest on, Peter Watts, science fiction writer. Jonathan Strand calls Peter Watts probably one of the living greatest science fiction writers working the day. And and it's really funny because even on this show, he pulls us up straight away, straight away about my comments I made about his blind sight when that first came out. Uh, you know, I wasn't a big fan of it. And, you know, as I said to him, it was all to do with if it had been in audio, that would have been great. You know, I wasn't that keen on Vern Orvinger's Rainbow's End. I wasn't that keen on... Most of them that was in that Hugo final, but, you know, the one I did like was Elfenheim, because that was in audio, you know, so that was my excuse. (laughs) But I had Peter Watts on, and I really, since Peter Watts, you know, all the kind of kerfuffle that happened with Peter Watts over at the, you know, the US border guards and everything like that, I've wanted to get Peter on just to have his side of the story. And he's always said, you know, when things were kind of kicking off and when things were going really downhill for him, he he didn't want to kind of blot his copybook kind of thing and you know he just wanted to wait everything was over and it was a bit of a stressful time for him and i had him on sofa notes this week and if you check if you're on the enhanced podcast just click on the link there now and you can go and subscribe to the sofa notes show but i wanted to get peter on and i want to get his kind of side of it you know and we'll probably never get the kind of side of the u.s border guards but you know peter's my friend i class him as a friend you know very nice guys come on so a number of times and it was very humbling to be quite honest Do you know what i mean it was really you know i had a couple of questions but i actually had this feeling i knew how this interview was going to go and it was it was the feeling that was just like just totally offloading do you know what i mean if you listen to the interview i hardly say a thing for an hour couple of questions at the end and that's probably it you know we have a bit joke and carry on at the front and then just peter just starts in this kind of monologue story and it's riveting, do you know what I mean? And the treatment that he, he went through, what happened, do you know what I mean? It's a great show. I do hope you go over and have a listen to it. Subscribe to Sofa Notes as well. Lucky enough, it got picked up on Boing Boing. I sent a note over there at Boing Boing. And it's, the download figures are nearly bigger than the main show, do you know what I mean? So that's really good. So please pop over there and subscribe. <laughs> Next up, we have Megan Argo with Explained in 60 Seconds. Megan. Explained in 60 Seconds. Quasar. As Arnold Rimmer once tried to revise for his astro-navigation exam, one of the questions he tried to answer was, what does the red spectrum tell us about quasars? He clearly didn't have a clue, so in 60 seconds' time, you all know more than he did. Short for quasi-stellar object, the term quasar describes a common class of astronomical extragalactic object. Why quasi-stellar? Well, when they were first discovered, they looked just like ordinary stars through optical telescopes, except that they were extraordinarily bright when observed at radio wavelengths. Some of them even show jets, not something we expect from ordinary stars. So what on Earth, or indeed off it, are they? 
Astronomical observations showed that most galaxies, including the Milky Way, harbor a supermassive black hole in the central bulge. Most of the time these black holes are just sitting quietly, as in our own galaxy, minding their own business. But in some galaxies they are far, far more active. Quasars are such galaxies. Imagine flying through one of these active galaxies in our spaceship that can defy the laws of physics. At the center we would see a supermassive black hole, pulling in material from the surrounding galaxy. Swirling around the center is a thin disk of gas, dust and stars, known as an accretion disk. When material from this disk gets too close to the black hole, it falls into the gravity well and is lost forever. Surrounding that disk is a larger, thicker torus of material, rotating slower the further out we go. And then, perpendicular to the disk, are two enormous jets of material, shooting out into intergalactic space in opposite directions. These galaxies exist all around the sky, and are mostly at vast distances from the Milky Way. If these jets happen to point in the direction of Earth, we see an object that looks point-like with an optical telescope, but enormously bright at radio wavelengths. And that's a quasar. What about the red spectrum? Well, very, very simply, the redder a quasar appears, the further away it is, and the faster it's moving away from us. Of course, if we see such objects from another angle, they look a bit different. But that's another story. So we step into the main fiction, and it comes to you by Geoffrey Ford. Geoffrey Ford, as you know, has been very kind to Starship Sova. He was one of the first writers to kind of sign up to let Starship Sova put out his Empire of Ice Scream, which we actually podcast a long t- a while ago, but he was one of the first to let put that in the anthology, Starship Sova's Stories, Volume 1. So a big thank you, Jeff, for allowing to do that. Jeff has fiction series. He has the Well-Built City trilogy. Novels include The Girl in the Glass and Shadow Year. Collections, The Fantasy Writer's Assistant and other stories. He has the collection The Empire of Ice Cream and The Drowned Life. And I've just been looking over to Jeffrey Ford has a new website over there as well called Jeffrey Ford's Well-Built City. Do pop over there and have a look. It is full of interesting stuff. He's also got a story coming out in the new Beastly Bride, an anthology edited by Ellen Datlow and Terry Windling. The story is entitled Gainsha. I hope that's how you pronounce it, Jeff. This anthology came out the 1st of April, so do check that out as well. Like I say, I'll put a link on to Jeff's site. Jeff's short stories start appearing in 1989 and still going strong today, 2010. According to the Internet Speculative Fiction Database, his first short story was The Alchemist Becalmed at Sea Weeps. This year he came out with 86 Death Dick Road and again this Gainsha story. So do look out for Jeffrey Ford. Do pop over there to Jeff's new site. Today's story is narrated by Peter Piazza. He is a former and award-winning journalist who now reports on technology for the printers and scanners site of About.com while working full-time for an association of security professionals. He is also a fiction writer, went to New York University once a long, long time ago. Peter was very kind to narrate the His Master's Voice story. And we have a number of stories coming up by Peter as well, so do look out for that. Again, links to Peter's site. And do remember the artwork that goes with this story. This is a fine bit of artwork to accompany this story. Thank you, Brian. So, Starship Sofa and her oral delights is very proud to present. Boatman's Holiday by Jeffrey Ford. Recorded for Starship Sofa by Peter Piazza. 
Beneath a blazing orange sun, he maneuvered his boat between the two petrified oaks that grew so high their tops were lost in violet clouds. The vast trunks and complexity of branches were bone white, as if hidden just below the surface of the murky water was a stag's head the size of a mountain. Thousands of crows, like black leaves, perched amidst the pale tangle, staring silently down. Feathers fell, spiraling in their descent with the slow grace of certain dreams, and he wondered how many of these journeys he made, or if they were all always the same journey. Beyond the oaks, the current grew stronger, and he entered a constantly shifting maze of whirlpools, some spinning clockwise, some counter, as if to negate the passage of time. Another boatman might have given in to panic and lost everything, but he was a master navigator and knew the river better than himself. Any other craft would have quickly succumbed to the seething waters, been torn apart, and its debris swallowed. His boat was comprised of an inner structure of human bone lashed together with tendon and covered in flesh stitched by his own steady hand, employing a thorn needle and thread spun from sorrow. The lines of its contours lacked symmetry, meandered and went off on tangents. Along each side, worked into the gunwales well above the waterline, was a row of eyeless, tongueless faces. The empty sockets, the gaping lips, portals through which the craft breathed. Below, in the hold, there reverberated a heartbeat that fluttered randomly and died every minute, only to be revived the next. On deck there were two long rows of benches fashioned from skulls for his passengers, and, at the back, his seat at the tiller. In the shallows he'd stand and use his long pole to guide the boat along. There was no need of a sail as the vessel moved slowly forward of its own volition with a simple command. On the trip out, the benches empty, he'd whisper, There. And on the journey back, carrying a full load, home. And no river current could dissuade its progress. Still, it took a sure and fearless hand to hold the craft on course. Charon's tall, wiry frame was slightly but irreparably bent from centuries hunched beside the tiller. His beard and tangled nest of snow-white hair, his complexion the color of ash, made him appear ancient. When in the throes of maneuvering around Felmy in the Blue Serpent, or in the heated rush along the shoals of the island of nothing, however, he'd toss one side of his scarlet cloak back over his shoulder, and the musculature of his chest, the coiled bulge of his bicep, the thick tendon in his forearm, gave evidence of the power hidden beneath his laconic façade. Woe to the passenger who mistook those outer signs of age for weakness, and set some plan in motion, for then the boatman would wield his long, shallow stick and shatter every bone in their body. Every treacherous obstacle, the clutch of shifting boulders, the rapids, the waterfall that dropped into a bottomless star-filled space, was expertly avoided with a skill born of intuition. Eventually a vague but steady tone, like the uninterrupted buzz of a mosquito, came to him over the water, a sign that he drew close to his destination. He shaded his eyes against the brightness of the flaming sun and spotted the dark, thin edge of shoreline in the distance.
As he advanced, that whispered note grew steadily into a high keening, and then fractured to reveal itself a chorus of agony. A few more leagues and he could make out the legion of forms crowding the bank. When close enough to land, he left the tiller, stood, and used the pole to turn the boat so it came to rest sideways on the black sand. Laying down the pole, he stepped to his spot at the prow. Two winged, toad-faced demons with talons for hands and hands for feet, Gesnil and Trinkthil, saw to the orderliness of the line of passengers that ran from the shore back a hundred yards into the writhing human continent of dead. Every day there were more travelers, and no matter how many trips Charon made, there was no hope of ever emptying the endless beach. Brandishing cat-o'-nine-tails with barbed tips fashioned from incisors, the demons lashed the tourists, as they called them, subduing those unwilling to go. "'Another load of the falsely accused, Charon,' said Gesnil, puffing on a lit human finger jutting from the corner of his mouth. "'Watch this woman third back in the blue dress,' said Trinkthil. "'Her blithering lamentations will bore you to sleep. "'You know, she never really meant to add Belladonna to the recipe for her husband's gruel.' "'Charon shook his head. "'We've got word that there will be no voyages for a time,' said Gesnil. "'Yes,' said Charon. "'I've been granted a respite by the master. "'A holiday.' "'A century's passed already,' said Gesnil. My, my, it seemed no more than three. Time flies. Traveling? asked Trinkthil, or staying home? Charon ignored the question and said, Send them along. The demons knew to obey, and they directed the first in line to move forward. A bald, overweight man in a cassock, some member of the clergy, stepped up. He was trembling so that his jowls shook. He'd waited on the shore in dire fear and anguish for centuries, milling about, fretting, as to the ultimate nature of his fate. Payment, said Charon. The man tipped his head back and opened his mouth. A round, shiny object lay beneath his tongue. The boatman reached out and took the gold coin, putting it in the pocket of his cloak. Next, called Charon, as the man moved past him and took a seat on the bench of skulls. Hell's orange sun screamed in its death throes every evening, a pandemonium sweeping down from above that made even the demons sweat and set the master's three-headed dog to cowering. That horrendous din worked its way into the rocks, the river, the petrified trees, and everything brimmed with misery. Slowly it diminished as the starless, moonless dark came on, devouring every last shred of light. With that infernal night came a cool breeze whose tantalizing relief never failed to deceive the damned, though they be residents for a thousand years, with a false promise of hope. That growing wind carried in it a catalyst for memory and set all who it caressed to recalling in vivid detail their lost lives, a torture individually tailored, more effective than fire. Charon sat in his home, 
the skull of a fallen god on the crest of a high flint hill overlooking the river. Through the left eye socket glazed with transparent lies, he could be seen sitting at a table, a glutton's fat tallow burning, its flame guttering in the night breeze let in through the gap of a missing tooth. Laid out before him was a curling width of tattooed flesh, skinned from the back of an ancient explorer who'd, no doubt, sold his soul for a sip from the fountain of youth. In the boatman's right hand was a compass, and in his left, a writing quill. His gaze traced along the strange parchment the course of his own river, Acheron, the river of pain, to where it crossed paths with Pyriflegathon, the river of fire. That burning course was eventually quelled in cataracts of steam where it emptied into and became the Lethe, river of forgetting. He traced his next day's journey with a quill tip gliding it an inch above the meandering line of vein blue. There, in the meager width of the last river's depiction, almost directly halfway between its origin and end in the mournful Cossetus, was a freckle. Anyone else would have thought it no more than a bodily blemish inked over by chance in the production of the map. But Charon was certain after centuries of overhearing whispered snatches of conversations from his unlucky passengers that it represented the legendary island of Undeshai. He put down his quill and compass and sat back in the chair, closing his eyes. Hanging from the center of the cathedral cranium above, the wind chime made of dangling bat bones clacked as the mischievous breeze that invaded his home lifted one corner of the map. He sighed at the touch of cool wind as its insidious effect reeled his memory into the past. One night, he couldn't recall how many centuries before, he was lying in bed on the verge of sleep when there came a pounding at the hinged door carved in the left side of the skull. "'Who's there?' he called in a fearsome voice he used to silence passengers. There was no verbal answer. But another barrage of banging ensued. He rolled out of bed, put on his cloak, and lit a tallow. Taking the candle with him, he went to the door and flung it open. A startled figure stepped back into the darkness. Charon thrust the light forward and beheld a cowed, trembling man, his naked flesh covered in oozing sores and wounds. Who are you? asked the boatman. The man stared up at him, holding out a hand. You've escaped from the pit, haven't you? The backside of the flint hill atop which his home sat overlooked the enormous pit, its circumference at the top a hundred miles across. Spiraling along its inner wall was a path that led down and down in ever-decreasing arcs through the various levels of hell to end at a pinpoint in the very mind of the master. Even at night, if Charon were to go behind the skull and peer out over the rim, he could see a faint reddish glow and hear the distant echo of plaintive wails. The man finally nodded. Come in, said Charon, and held the door as the stranger shuffled past him. Later, after he'd been offered a chair, a spare cloak, and a cup of nettle tea, 
the broken visitor began to come around. You know, said Charon, there's no escape from hell. This I know, mumbled the man, making a great effort to speak as if he'd forgotten the skill. But there is an escape in hell. What are you talking about? The dog will be here within an hour to fetch you back. He's less than gentle. I need to make the river, said the man. What's your name? asked Charon. Why, Root, said the man with a grimace. The boatman nodded. This escape in hell, where is it? What is it? Undishai, said Wyroot, an island in the river Lethe. Where did you hear of it? I created it, he said, holding his head with both hands as if to remember. Centuries ago, I, I wrote it into the fabric of the mythology of hell. Mythology? asked Charon. I suppose those wounds on your body are merely a myth. Suffering's real here, don't I know it, but the entire construction of hell is, of course, man's own invention. The pit, the three-headed dog, the rivers, you, if I may say so, all sprung from the mind of humanity, confabulated to, to punish itself. Hell has been here from the beginning, said Charon. Yes, said Wyroot, in one form or another, but when in the living world something is added to the legend, some detail to better convince believers or convert new ones, here it leaps into existence with a ready-made history that instantly spreads back to the start and a guaranteed future that creeps inexorably forward. The escapee fell into a fit of coughing smoke from the fires of the pit, issuing in small clouds from his lungs. The heat's made you mad, said Charon. You've had too much time to think. Both may be true, croaked Wyroot, wincing in pain. But listen for a moment more. You appear to be a man, yet, I'll wager, you don't remember your youth. Where were you born? How, how did you become the boatman? Charon strained his memory, searching for an image of his past in the world of the living. All he saw was rows and rows of heads tilting back, proffering the coin beneath the tongue. An image of him setting out across the river, passing between the giant oaks, repeated behind his eyes three dozen times in rapid succession. Nothing there. Am I correct? Charon stared hard at his guest. I was a cleric, said Wyroot, and in copying a sacred text describing the environs of hell, I deviated from the disintegrating original and added the existence of Undershai. Over the course of years... Decades, centuries, other scholars found my creation and added it to their own works. And so now Undershai 
though not as well known as yourself or your river, is an actuality in this desperate land. From down along the river bank came the approaching sound of Cerberus baying. Wairut stood, sloughing off the cloak to let it drop into his chair. I've got to get to the river, he said. But consider this. You live in the skull of a fallen god. This space was once filled with a substance that directed the universe. No, no. Was the universe. How does a god die? You'll never get across, said Sharon. I don't want to. I want to be caught in its flow. You'll drown. Yes, I'll drown. I'll be bitten by the spiny eels burned in the river of fire, but I won't die, for I'm already dead. Some time, ages hence, my body will wash up on the shore of Undeshai, and I will have arrived home. The way I crafted the island, the moment you reach its shores and pull yourself from the river of forgetting, you instantly remember everything. It sounds like a child's tale, Charon murmured. Thank you, said the stranger. What gave you cause to create this island? asked the boatman. Wairut staggered toward the door. As he opened it and stepped out into the pitch black, he called back. I knew I would eventually commit murder. Charon followed out into the night and heard the man's feet pacing away down the flint hill toward the river. Seconds later, he heard the wheezing breath of the three-headed dog. Growling, barking, sounded in triplicate. There was silence for a time, and then finally, a splash. And in that moment, in the merest instant, an image of a beautiful island flashed behind the boatman's eyes. He'd nearly been able to forget the incident with Wairut as the centuries flowed on, their own river of pain, until, one day, he heard one of his passengers whisper the word, Undeshai, to another. Three or four times this happened, and then, only a half-century passed, a young woman, still radiant, though dead, with shiny black hair and the curious red dot of a birthmark just below her left eye, was ushered onto his boat. He requested payment. When she tilted back her head, opened her mouth, and lifted her tongue, there was no coin, but instead a small, tightly folded package of flesh. Charon nearly lost his temper as he retrieved it from her mouth, but she whispered quickly, A map to Undershai. These words were like a slap to his face, he froze for the merest instant, but then thought quickly and, nodding, stepped aside for her to take a seat. Next, he yelled, and the demons were none the wiser. Later that night he unfolded the crudely cut rectangle of skin and, after a close inspection of the tattoo, cursed himself for having been duped. He swept the map onto the floor and the night breeze blew it into a corner. Weeks later, after finding it had been blown back out from under his table onto the middle of the floor, he lifted it and searched it again. This time, he noticed the freckle in the length of Lethe's blue line. 
and wondered. He kept his boat in a small lagoon hidden by a thicket of black poplars. It was just after sunrise, and he'd already stowed his provision in the hold below deck. After lashing them fast with lengths of hangman's rope, he turned around to face the chaotically beating heart of the craft. The large blood organ, having once resided in the chest of the Queen of Sirens, was suspended in the center of the hold by thick, branch-like veins and arteries that grew into the sides of the boat. Its vasculature expanded and contracted, and the heart itself beat erratically, undulating and shivering, sweating red droplets. Charon waited until after it died, lay still, and then was startled back to life by whatever immortal force pervaded its chambers. Once it was moving again, he gave a high-pitched whistle, a note that began at the bottom of the register and quickly rose to the top. At the sound of this signal... The wet red meat of the thing parted into a slit to reveal an eye. The orb swiveled to and fro, and the boatman stepped up close with a burning tallow in one hand, and the map opened in the other. He back-licked the scrap of skin to let the eye read its tattoo. He'd circled the freckle that represented Undershai with his quill, so that the destination was clearly marked. All he'd have to do is steer around the dangers, keep the keel in deep water, and stay awake. Otherwise, the craft now knew the way to go. Up on deck he cast off the ropes, and instead of uttering the word, There, he spoke a command used less than once a century. Away. The boat moved out of the lagoon and onto the river. Charon felt something close to joy, at not having to steer between the giant white oaks. He glanced up to his left at the top of the flint hill and saw the huge skull staring down at him. The day was hot and orange, and all of hell was busy at the work of suffering. But he, the boatman, was off on a holiday. On the voyage out he traveled with the flow of the river, so its current combined with the inherent, enchanted propulsion of the boat made for swift passage. There were the usual whirlpools, outcroppings of sulfur and brimstone to avoid, but these occasional obstacles were a welcome diversion. He'd never taken this route before when on holiday. Usually he'd just stay home, resting, making minor repairs to the boat, playing knucklebones with some of the batwing demons from the pit on a brief break from the grueling work of torture. Once, as a guest of the master during a holiday... He'd been invited to the bottommost reaches of the pit, transported in a winged chariot that glided down through the center of the great spiral. There, where the czar of the underworld kept a private palace made of frozen sighs, in a land of snow so cold one's breath fractured upon touching the air, he was led by an army of living marble statues, shaped like men, but devoid of faces, down a tunnel, that led to an enormous circle of clear ice. Through this transparent barrier he could look out on the realm of the living. Six days he spent, transfixed between astonishment and fear at the sight of the world the way it was. That vacation left a splinter of ice in his heart that took three centuries to melt. 
None of his previous getaways ever resulted in a tenth the sense of relief he already felt, having gone but a few miles along the nautical route to Windeshai. He repeated the name of the island again and again under his breath, as he worked the tiller or manned the shallows pole, hoping to catch another glimpse of its image as he had the night Wairut dove into the Acheron. As always, that mental picture refused to coalesce, but he'd learned to suffice with its absence, which had become a kind of solace in itself. To avoid dangerous eddies and rocks in the middle flow of the river, Charon was occasionally forced to steer the boat in close to shore on the port side, there he glimpsed the marvels of that remote, forgotten landscape, a distant string of smoldering volcanoes, a thundering herd of bloodless behemoths sweeping like a white wave across the immensity of a fissured salt flat, a glittering forest of crystal trees alive with long-tailed monkeys made of pitch. The distractions were many, but he struggled to put away his curiosity and concentrate for fear of running aground and ripping a hole in the hull. He hoped to make the river of fire before nightfall so as to have light with which to navigate. To travel the Acheron blind would be sheer suicide, and, unlike Wairut, Charon was uncertain as to whether he was already dead or alive or merely a figment of hell's imagination. There was the possibility of finding a natural harbor and dropping the anchor, but the land through which the river ran had showed him fierce and mysterious creatures stalking him along the banks, and that made steering through the dark seem the fairer alternative. As the day waned and the sun began to whine with the pain of its gradual death, Charon peered ahead with a hand shading his sight in anticipation of a glimpse at the flames of Pyroflegathon. During his visit to the Palace of Frozen Sighs, the master had let slip that the liquid fire of those waters burned only sinners. Because the boat was a tool of hell, made of hell, he was fairly certain it could withstand the flames. But he wasn't sure if at some point in his distant past he had not sinned. If he were to blunder into suffering, though, he thought that he at least would learn some truth about himself. In the last moments of light he lit three candles and positioned them at the prow of the boat. They proved ineffectual against the night, casting their glow only a shallow's pole length ahead of the craft. Their glare wearied Charon's eyes. To distract himself from fatigue, he went below and brought back a dried, salted harpy leg to chew on. In recent centuries the winged creatures had grown scrawny, almost thin enough to slip his snares— the meat was known to improve eyesight and exacerbate the mind. Its effect had nothing to do with clarity, merely a kind of agitation of thought that was, at this juncture, preferable to slumber. Sleep was the special benefit of the working class of hell, and the boatmen usually relished it. Dreams especially were an exotic escape from the routine of work. The sinners never slept nor did the master. Precisely at the center of the night, Charon felt some urge, some pull of intuition to push the tiller hard to the left. As soon as he'd made the reckless maneuver, he heard from up ahead the loud gulping sound that meant a whirlpool 
laid in his path. The sound grew quickly to a deafening strength, and only when he was upon the swirling monster, riding its very lip around the right arc, was he able to see its immensity. The boat struggled to free itself from the draw, and instead of being propelled by its magic, it seemed to be clawing its way forward, dragging its weight free of the hopeless descent. There was nothing he could do but hold the tiller firm and stare with widened eyes down the long, treacherous tunnel. Not a moment passed after he was finally free of it. Then the boat entered the turbulent waters, where Acheron crossed the river of fire. He released his grip on the tiller and let the craft lead him with its knowledge of the map he'd shown it. His fingers gripped tightly into the eye holes of two of the skulls that formed his seat, and he held on so as not to be thrown overboard. Pyreflegathon now blazed ahead of him, and the sight of its roiling flames, some flaring high into the night, made him scream, not with fear, but exhilaration. The boat forged forward, cleaved the burning surface, and then was engulfed in a yellow-orange brightness that gave no heat. The frantic illumination dazed Charon, and he sat as in a trance, dreaming wide awake. He no longer felt the passage of time, the urgency to reach his destination, the weight of all those things he'd fled on his holiday. Eventually, after a prolonged bright journey, the blazing waters became turbulent, lost their fire, and a thick mist rose off of them. The mist quickly became a fog, that seemed to have texture, brushing against his skin like a feather. He thought he might grab handfuls until it slipped through his fingers, leaked into his nostrils, and wrapped its tentacles around his memory. When the boatman awoke to the daily birth cry of Hell's son, he found himself lying naked upon his bed, staring up at a clutch of bat bones dangling from the cranial center of his skull home. He was startled at first, grasping awkwardly for a tiller that wasn't there, tightening his fist around the shaft of the absent shallow stick that instead rested at an angle against the doorway. As soon as the shock of discovery that he was home had abated, he sighed deeply and sat up on the edge of the bed. It struck him then that his entire journey, his holiday, had been for naught. He frantically searched his thoughts for the slightest shred of a memory that he might have reached Undishai, but every trace had been forgotten. For the first time in centuries, tears came to his eyes, and the frustration of his predicament made him cry out. Eventually, he stood and found his cloak rolled into a ball on the floor at the foot of the bed. He dressed, and without stopping to put on his boots or grab the shallows pole, he left his home. With determination in his stride, he mounted the small rise that lay back behind the skull and stood at the rim of the enormous pit. Inching to the very edge, he peered down into the spiral depths at the faint red glow. The screams of tortured sinners, the wailing laments of self-pity sounded in his ears like distant voices in a dream. Beneath it all, he could barely discern, like the buzzing of a fly, the sound of the master laughing uproariously, joyously, and that discordant strain seemed to lace itself subtly into everything. 
Charon's anger and frustration slowly melted into a kind of numbness as cold as the hallways of Satan's palace, and he swayed to and fro, out over the edge and back, not so much wanting to jump as waiting to fall. Time passed. He was not aware how much, and then, as suddenly as he had dressed and left his home, he turned away from the pit. Once more inside the skull, he prepared to go to work. There was a great heaviness within him, as if his very organs were now made of lead, and each step was an effort, each exhalation a sigh. He found his eelskin ankle boots beneath the table at which he'd studied the flesh map at night. Upon lifting one, it turned in his hand, and a steady stream of blonde sand poured out onto the floor. The sight of it caught him off guard, and for a moment he stopped breathing. He fell to his knees to inspect the little pile that had formed. Carefully he lifted the other boot, turned it over, and emptied that one into its own neat little pile next to the other. He reached toward these twin wonders, initially wanting to feel the grains run through his fingers, but their stark proof that he had been to Undershai and could not recall a moment of it ultimately defeated his will, and he never touched them. Instead, he stood, took up the shallow's pole, and left the skull for his boat. As he guided the boat between the two giant oaks, he no longer wondered if all his journeys across the Acheron were always the same journey. With a dull aspect, he performed his duties as the boatman. His muscles, educated in the task over countless centuries, knew exactly how to avoid the blue serpent and skirt the whirlpools without need of a single thought. No doubt it was these same unconscious processes that had brought Charon and his craft back safely from Undershai. Gesnil and Trinkthil inquired with great anticipation about his vacation when he met them on the far shore, for the demons, who knew no respite from the drudgery of herding sinners, even a few words about a holiday away, would have been like some rare confection. But he told them nothing. From the look on Charon's face, they knew not to prod him, and merely sent the travelers forward to offer coins and take their places on the benches. During the return trip that morning, a large fellow sitting among the passengers had a last-second attack of nerves in the face of an impending eternity of suffering. He screamed incoherently, and Charon ordered him to silence. When the man stood up and began pacing back and forth, the boatman ordered him to return to his seat. The man persisted moving about, his body jerking with spasms of fear, and it was obvious his antics were spooking the other sinners— Fearing the man would spread mutiny, Charon came forth with a shallow stick and, bringing it around like a club, split the poor fellow's head. That was usually all the incentive a recalcitrant passenger needed to return to the bench, but this one was now insane with the horror of his plight. The boatman waded in and beat him wildly, striking him again and again, with each blow, Charon felt some infinitesimal measure of relief from his own frustration. When he was finished, the agitator lay in a heap on deck, nothing more than a flesh bag full of broken bones, and the other passengers shuffled their feet sideways 
as not to touch it. Only later, after he had docked his boat in the lagoon and the winged demons had flown out of the pit to lead the damned up the flint hill and down along the spiral path to their eternal destinies, did the boatman regret his rage. As he lifted the sack of flesh that had been his charge and dumped it like a bale of chum over the side, he realized that the man's hysteria had been one and the same thing as his own frustration. The sun sounded its death cry as it sank into a pool of blood that was the horizon, and then hell's twilight came on. Charon dragged himself up the hill and went inside his home. Before pure night closed its fist on the riverbank, he kicked off his boots, gnawed on a haunch of harpy flesh, and lit the tallow that sat in its holder on the table. Taking his seat there, he stared into the flame, thinking of it as the future that constantly drew him forward through the years, decades, centuries, eons, as they passed, disappeared behind him. I am nothing but a moment, he said aloud, and his words echoed around the empty skull. Sometime later, still sitting in his chair at the table, he noticed the candle flame twitch. His eyes shifted for the first time in hours to follow its movement. Then the fire began to dance. The sheets of flesh parchment lifted slightly at their corners. The bat bones clacked quietly overhead. Hill's deceptive wind of memory had begun to blow. He heard it whistling in through the space in his home's grin, felt its coolness sweep around him. This most complex and exquisite torture that brought back to sinners the times of their lives now worked on the boatman. He moved his bare feet beneath the table and realized the piles of sand lay beneath them. The image began in his mind no more than a dot of blue and then rapidly unfolded in every direction to reveal a sky and crystal water. The sun there in Undershai had been yellow, and it gave true warmth. This he remembered clearly. He'd sat high on a hill of blonde sand staring out across the endless vista of sparkling water. Next to him on the left was Wairut, legs crossed, dressed in a black robe and sporting a beard to hide the healing scars that riddled his face. On the right was the young woman with the shining black hair and the red dot of a birthmark beneath her left eye. And you created all this by writing it in the other world, asked Charon. There was a breeze blowing, and the boatman felt a certain lightness inside, as if he'd eaten one of the white clouds floating across the sky. I'll tell you a secret, said Wairut, although it's a shame you'll never get a chance to put it to use. Tell me, said the boatman. God made the world with words, he said in a whisper. Charon remembered that he didn't understand. He furrowed his brow and turned to look at the young woman to see if she was laughing. Instead, she was also nodding along with Wairut. She put her hand on the boatman's shoulder and said, And man made God with words. Charon's memory of the beach on Undershai suddenly gave violent birth to another memory from his holiday. He was sitting in a small structure with no door, 
facing out into a night scene of tall trees whose leaves were blowing in a strong wind. Although it was night, it was not the utter darkness he knew from his quadrant of hell. High in the black sky there shone a bright disk which cast its beam down upon the island. Their glow had seeped into the small home behind him and fell upon the forms of Wairut and the woman. Shara was her name where they slept upon a bed of reeds. Beneath the sound of the wind, the calls of the night birds, the whirr of insects, he heard the steady breathing of the sleeping couple. And one last memory followed. Charon recalled Wairut drawing near to him as he was about to board his boat for the return journey. You told me you committed murder, said the boatman. I did, said Wairut. Who? That god whose skull you live in, came the words, which grew faint and then disappeared as the night wind of hell ceased blowing. The memories faded, and Charon looked up to see the candle flame again at rest. He reached across the table and drew his writing quill and a sheaf of parchment toward him. Dipping the pen nib into the pot of blood that was his ink, he scratched out two words at the top of the page. My story, he wrote, and then set about remembering the future. The words came, slowly at first, reluctantly, dragging their imagery behind them, but after a short while their numbers grew to equal the number of sinners awaiting a journey to the distant shore. He ferried them methodically, expertly, from his mind to the page, scratching away long into the dark night of hell, until down at the bottom of the spiral pit, in his palace of frozen sighs, Satan suddenly stopped laughing. There you go, thank you, Jeffrey. Don't forget all copyright is Jeffrey Fords. And Peter, thank you for a great narration. Have another story come by Jeff soon called Creation, and I'm sure I can snaggle a few more as well while I'm there. Jeff, Peter, thank you so much. Next up, our good friend, Mr. J.J. Campanella, with his science news for me. Jim, sir. Greetings and salutations, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this May 2010 Science News Update. I'm your very tired host, Jim Campanella. The regular school year ends this week, and so I have a very short respite before I teach my first summer class next week. I'm trying to fit in doing this recording before my month of insanity starts during that class. Let's just get started. One of the dreams of humans is to be able to alter our bodies, make ourselves stronger or faster instantly, or at least over a very short time. Certainly there are plenty of SF stories that use that theme of short-term body alteration as a cornerstone. Authors from Jack Chalker to John Varley have exploited the idea over and over again. Imagine being able to run a marathon tomorrow with no training. Uh, Well... I cannot readily imagine doing that myself. Although I'm in pretty good shape, I would literally die in the first several miles if forced to run a long race, simply because my body has not been trained for it. 
Even though I get weekly workouts in the dojo of which I'm a member, that is not the right type of training for a long, arduous race. I make that joke about the marathon and not being able to go from being a couch potato to a runner in a day, and for humans, that's pretty accurate. We can't do that. However, there are species upon this earth who can. A new study from Dr. Steve Morris's lab at the University of Bristol describes one such species. His paper was published this month in the Journal of Experimental Biology. Christmas Island red crabs spend months hunkered down and inactive in burrows, waiting for the monsoon season to come every year. As soon as the rains hit, they're off on a marathon, marching across the island for up to 12 hours a day to the beaches where they mate and reproduce. First of all, let me say that the motivation for sexual reproduction seems to be one of the strongest for any higher animal on the face of the earth. I refer you to the entire panoply of porkies or American pie movies. Second, the physiology and development that is transpiring in these crabs is nothing short of amazing. They must make major changes to their muscle composition over a very short time of a day or two to switch from muscle-suited to anaerobic short-term sprinting, which they use while lazing around the inland, to aerobic high-endurance muscles needed to sustain that coastal march. In short, they have to have the ability to completely reorganize their muscle structure while actually on the run. For his experiments, Morris collected leg muscles from crabs while they were in the middle of their migrating marathon. And then he returned six months later to collect muscles from the animals during the dry season when they were just relaxing. Morris isolated the mRNA from each set of muscles. For those of you who don't remember, mRNA, messenger RNA, is the code molecule that is transcribed from the DNA of genes and then translated to make proteins. It's an intermediate messenger molecule. Scientists can use the presence of those messages to determine what proteins are being made in cells. And if you know what proteins are being made, you can determine if there are any differences between the genes that are being turned on and transcribed during the crab's monsoon migration and those that are transcribed when the crabs are just inactive during the dry season. Well, after months of building a library from the mRNA molecules from both tissues and analyzing the expression levels of many genes, the team finally saw that there were dramatic differences between the migrating and inactive crab muscles. It was not surprising to them that the majority of the genes expressed in the muscles encoded for muscle proteins. There's lots of muscle proteins. Uh, there's actin, which forms part of the muscle's uh, contractile unit. And then there are others like troponin and tropomyosin, which regulate muscular contraction. And these were all different in the two types of muscles. When the team took a closer look at the versions of the genes that were expressed, they could see that the couch potato dry season crab muscles were tuned to short anaerobic sprints, while the muscles of the crabs that were migrating during the monsoon were aerobic, extremely resistant to fatigue, and ideal for the crab's hellish journey. The proteins involved in muscle reconstruction were more abundant in the migrating crab legs, and their comparative upregulation was consistent with the remodeling of leg muscles for the migration in the wet season. The conclusion was that the crab muscles undergo a dramatic change in gene expression and they are ready for the migration to the coast. That is the cool part. 
horrible part is that Dr. Morris did not live to see his work published. He was knocked off his bicycle by a car on the way into his lab about a year ago and died later from his injuries. According to one of his co-authors, he never even got a chance to see the reviewer's comments on the crab paper, which came in the day he was in the accident. I guess that the theme of the story is that you never know when your time is going to come. Onwards. The next story is about an article that appeared at the end of April in the journal Nature. The work was performed by the lab of Dr. Stephen Kingsmore, a geneticist at the National Center for Genome Resources in Santa Fe, New Mexico. One of the concepts that I first teach to genetics classes is the idea that even though identical twins have the same genetic sequence, they are often not just different, but sometimes very different. These differences can depend on the environment that each twin is exposed to. A simple example is the genetic disease phenylketonuria, in which the affected person cannot digest the amino acid phenylalanine. I'm sure you've all seen the warnings on the sides of diet soda cans for people who have PKU. If exposed to phenylalanine as a baby, the toxins build up in a PKU-affected individual and will cause that person to become mentally disabled. If one twin is exposed to the amino acid while the other is not, then you will have one mentally retarded twin and the other will be perfectly normal. Note, this is when they both have the same genetic makeup. They are identical twins still. Well, just to show you how complicated the effect of the environment may be, a new study from Kingsmore's lab has come up empty-handed after pursuing a genetic explanation for why one identical twin can develop multiple sclerosis while the other one stays healthy. Kingsmore found no trace of what caused the discrepancy in the twins' DNA sequences. He and his colleague also found no smoking gun when they compared the actual levels of gene activity between the sick and the well twin. Now, these may seem like negative results, which often drive scientists to drink, but they are still very important. They indicate that it is not just differences in DNA or gene expression that account for differences in the twins. The differences in phenotype between the diseased and healthy twin must come down to the difference in the environments of the two. Kingsmore says, quote, Our results point to some novel environmental trigger that must be very important to the disease. Um, we just don't know what that is yet. Unquote. For those of you who do not remember, in multiple sclerosis, the immune system goes rogue and attacks and damages the myelin sheath that helps speed electrical communications between nerves. That myelin sheath is a fatty layer that must be present for swift communication. Removal of that layer is the equivalent of scraping the coating from an electrical wire and causing short circuits. In affected people, the damage results in pain and symptoms such as loss of coordination and vision and, and even loss of memory. Kingsmore's work is very interesting and suggests the start of a search for the mysterious environmental triggers that might be present. However, there are some problems with the study's outcome. First, it is quite a small study. It only examined three pairs of twins. Yes, that's right, just six people. Second, the researchers only studied one type of immune cell known to be involved in multiple sclerosis and no others. There are quite a number of cells involved in the process of inducing MS. They didn't look at those others. And finally, third, as any decent scientist will tell you, the problem with negative results are simply that they are negative. 
Just because you found nothing does not mean there is nothing to find. You may have found the correct result, or you may just need to look harder. So Kingsmore probably needs to do a boatload more experiments before his findings are generally accepted by the science community at large. Okay, for the next story, get out your copies of the Starship Sofa Omnibus Stories Edition Number 1. Now stare at the cover. Besides that lovely robot caught in ice, the thing that draws your attention in the picture are the Neanderthals. They are beastly and violent-looking, and certainly skirt the edge of any kind of humanity. As modern humans, we are fascinated and horrified by the Neanderthals at the same time. They represent a dead path revolution, a dead end. Homo sapiens survived, and our poor, sad cousins did not. Evolution favored us because we are so much more adaptable. Or did it? Are Neanderthals truly dead and gone? I'm serious when I ask that question, and no, I am not auditioning for a Monster Hunter episode. I ask that question with all candor. Are there any living Neanderthals left? Well, the answer is yes, and no. Uh, See, I never make it easy for you, do I? The answer really depends on what you call living and survived. In the May 7th issue of the journal Science, Dr. David Reich of the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard examines this very question. It turns out that Reich's new study of the Neanderthal genome shows that humans and Neanderthals actually interbred. This is a serious breakthrough in our understanding of our genetics, as well as that of Neanderthals. Also, the discovery comes as a serious surprise to researchers who have been searching for genetic evidence of human Neanderthal interbreeding for years and have found none up to this point. About 1-4% to of DNA in modern people from Europe and Asia was inherited from Neanderthals, says the paper. Reich says that's a small but very real proportion of our ancestry, and I cannot argue with him. Comparisons of the human and Neanderthal genomes also are helping to reveal how humans evolved to become the sole living hominid species on this planet. Neanderthals lived in Europe, the Middle East, and Western Asia until they disappeared about 30,000 years ago. We thought they just died out, but the more likely explanation based upon this new data indicates that humans may not have simply replaced Neanderthals, but assimilated them into the human gene pool. Co-author of the paper, Savante Pabo, of the Max Planck Institute says, Neanderthals are not totally extinct. They live on in some of us. So there, my answer of yes and no is justified. Neanderthals are essentially dead, but their DNA is still around and living and reproducing. Apparently, none of this came as a surprise to archaeologists and physical anthropologists. Both have described hybridized ancient skeletons from Europe that had characteristics of both early modern humans and Neanderthals. These skeletons, the social scientists said, were evidence of interbreeding between the two groups. But until the cataloging of the entire Neanderthal genome, genetic studies couldn't find evidence to support their hypothesis. The researchers were surprised to find further that people from China and Papua New Guinea, places where Neanderthals never lived, have just as much Neanderthal ancestry as people from France. At the same time, they found no traces of Neanderthal heritage in the two African groups they studied. 
That result probably means that interbreeding between Neanderthals and humans took place about 50,000 to 80,000 years ago in the Middle East, as humans were migrating out of Africa to colonize the rest of the world. It's not clear how extensive this interbreeding was. The data are consistent with either a short period with a lot of interbreeding or a long period of little interbreeding. Now, here's one of the problems. Biologists define species as strains of animals or plants that are able to successfully reproduce to give fertile offspring. Since humans and Neanderthals could interbreed, some people question whether the two groups are actually different hominid species. Going by the strict definition, the answer appears to be no. This new study suggests that many humans had a Neanderthal great-great-great-great-great etc. grandfather, it may be impossible to talk about them as them anymore. As one researcher put it, Neanderthals are us. For the last story of the night, I have a psychology study from the latest issue of the journal, Biopsychosocial Medicine. The study was performed by Dr. Kurt Krauke at the Center for Chronobiology in the Psychiatric University Clinics in Basel, Switzerland. Dr. Krauke reports on the relationship between cold hands and feet and insomnia and suppressed anger in women. Now, I would not have thought those rather disparate elements would have any relationship to each other at all, but Dr. Krauke tends to disagree. The aim of his study was to test the hypothesis of whether stereotypic feminine gender socialization, that is, little girls being forced to play with dolls, wearing dresses, washing dishes, or changing babies, is related to anger suppression, which in turn could affect sleep and the temperature of the extremities. When I first read this, my first impression was, what in the blue blazes is this not going on about? But I wanted to give him a chance, and I read the paper, and, well, by the time I was finished with it, I was certain that he was nuts as a bag of planters. 148 Swiss women were questioned in large surveys on their suppressed anger, cold fingers and toes, and insomnia. Further questions were included that, quote, employed a gender power inventory and estimated the degree of gender-specific power expression explicitly within these women by stereotypic feminine or male attribution, unquote. They then did statistical analyses to determine whether there were any correlations among these factors. The results? Well, a significant correlation was found from stereotypic feminine attribution to suppressed anger and prolonged insomnia. Additionally, a further indirect correlation was found from anger suppression to old extremities. In contrast, any women who had stereotypic male attributes did not show the suppressed anger, but were significantly associated with outwardly expressed anger. So if I understand this right, women who are brought up feminine in a stereotypical fashion do not express anger. They suppress it and will not be able to sleep. Okay, I kind of understand that. But further, they will have cold fingers and toes? While women who show more masculine type behavior and do not suppress anger will have no trouble sleeping and will have warm fingers and toes. Am I reading this correctly? The authors conclude that stereotypic 
feminine gender socialization may play an important determinant for anger suppression, which consequently can lead to thermal discomfort from cold extremities and insomnia. This entire premise is so inane that I do not even know where to begin with it. First of all, let me say, as someone with a daughter, many girls just naturally drift into the stereotypic feminine gender role. My daughter loves trains and cars almost as much as my son does, but she is also a fashion diva and loves dolls and makeup and Disney's princesses. My wife and I have never pushed her toward any of those things, but she just naturally is drawn to them. I've talked with other fathers who have daughters, and they often say the same thing. No matter how gender neutral they have tried to raise their daughters, they just naturally are drawn to all things feminine just by themselves. It just happens. So am I to understand that this study suggests that girls exposed to stereotypic feminine stuff will engender secret anger toward men, society? What exactly? And worse, that anger will cause them not to sleep and to have cold hands and feet? Well, maybe if the women are Swiss? I, I have no idea. First, I suggest that Krauke think twice about self-reported data. Subjective data is always questionable data. Just because someone says they have cold hands does not mean that they do. Show us the physiological data on blood flow and temperature, and perhaps we'll believe it a little more. Second, I swear every girlfriend I ever had as a youth complained about cold hands. Now that is just my experience, but if cold hands in women is quite prevalent, then it is silly to be correlating cold hands with any psychological state because it is just as likely to be or not, depending on that particular psychological state. I chatted with my wife about this. She's a mathematician. When I told her that 30% of women, according to the authors of this study, have cold extremities, she laughed and said that the statistics of the paper are nonsense. If you have such a high population of women with one condition, cold feet, and if there is an equally high population of women with suppressed anger, let's say conservatively 30%, then probability says there will just have to be a population of women who are both angry and have cold feet. The two traits will be independent of each other, but they will appear together in a high enough proportion of the population to appear significant. This is made worse by two other problems with the study. First, the cross-section of the study was not broad at all in terms of ages, 20 to 40, or races. All were white Swiss women. And 148 women is a very small sample population to be making such broad statements as they are making. I kind of like the idea that distal vasoconstriction and cold extremities may have clinical relevance for insomnia, but I am not convinced that these have anything to do with feminine stereotypes and anchor suppression. This is why I'm not a psychologist, by the way. It seems so difficult sometimes to not only come up with new psychological hypotheses, but also to support them experimentally. Well, that's all for me from now. As always, take care, watch out for insomniac feminists with cold feet, and I hope I have inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. So that is Oral Delight Show 137. I do hope you've enjoyed it. And if you are taking part or enjoying the enhanced podcasts, let us know if I'm doing it right.
That's the main thing. So I hope it's everything's okay for you. Little, little say upgrade of the show. If anyone wants it, it's there for you. Pop over to the front of the website. Give you a little heads up what's coming in next week's show. We have Amy H. Sturgis. And I will be releasing the art cover for Starship Sofa's Captain's Logs. Created by our good friend D, the cover of the new Transcribers book. Do look out for that. So, there you go. I hope you've enjoyed it. Until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting instalment of Starship Sofa. A evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.